The scripture this morning is James 5, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, you may or may not remember the name Scott Tucker. Uh, Scott Tucker uh, is from the Kansas City metro here, and he was a businessman. And he opened uh, an online business uh, in the 2000s. It was called AMG Services that offered payday loans. And if you're not familiar... Uh, payday loans are loans designed for the vulnerable in particular. Uh, you can take out a small loan to cover a utility bill or a car repair, something that a bank probably would never do. Uh, but the catch is that the interest rates are, all, are, are in most cases just insanely high. So Tucker and his business, they offered these loans in states where the practice was illegal he would even make deals with Native American tribes to avoid federal and state law. And from 2008 to 2013, Tucker and his company made an absurd amount of money by wringing the wealth out of some of the most vulnerable people in our country, living paycheck to paycheck, truly. And he built an opulent mansions with that money. He took exotic vacations. He even bought a race car. Uh, to compete around the world, he was flaunting his wealth for, for any and all to see. And if you want to hear his whole story, it's featured in an episode of uh, uh, Dirty Money on Netflix. Today, right now, he is serving a 16-year sentence in Leavenworth for fraud and racketeering. But the people that he hurt, the people who he took advantage of, well, most of them will probably never be whole again. Stories like that, they get my blood boiling. I don't know about you. Because it's one thing to steal, right? We know stealing is bad, but to steal from people who already have so little, who are, just, who are one unexpected hospital trip, medical expense away from eviction, from 
getting a utility shut off, from losing a job because they can no longer make it to work on time. That's a different kind of evil, isn't it? And yet, as we turn to James chapter 5, as we just heard read, and and James here is speaking to his, uh, you know, Scott Tuckers of his day, we need to hear his warning. We may never be featured on a Netflix documentary. We may never be served papers by the Securities and Exchange Commission, our little corruptions may never make headlines. But if we are not careful, the deceptiveness of money and the love of wealth can turn anyone into a Scott Tucker. Anyone. So if you have your Bible with you, I want us to take a look at James chapter 5. So turn to the book of James. Use your table of contents if you have to. Chapter 5. We're actually down to our final messages, believe it or not, in the book of James. And for the most part, if you've been with us along the way, you know that that James is writing to a congregation of Jewish Christians who have been scattered due to persecution uh, in Jerusalem. These are likely some of the very first Christians ever in the first century. But his tone is different here in chapter 5. I want you to listen to this again. Verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now that doesn't sound like Pastor James, does it? No, James is doing something different here. Uh, He is picking up on a practice that is all over the Old Testament prophets. And if you've read the Old Testament prophets, you know that for the most part, they address God's people specifically. It's a word from God to his people. But every now and again, they actually talk about the surrounding nations and their evil practices and God's judgment coming on them, whether that was Edom or Syria or Babylon or Egypt. James is doing something similar here. He is not addressing the congregation, but likely the employers of the congregation. These vulnerable people were being exploited by wealthy landowners in the first century. And that's why later on, he encourages the congregation. He says, brothers, wait, be patient for God's judgment because he's going to take care of this. We're going to get to that in a minute. But from our perspective now, this passage is a warning. It's a warning of how quickly our wealth can make people of real faith into real monsters. Seriously, monsters. So that's the first part of James's warning here. This is what he's getting at. Our wealth can ruin us. James starts this whole section with something we probably all already know but really quickly forget, which is that our wealth is not permanent. He says, look, at, he says, look your, your riches have rotted. He says, like, like all the food you have stored in your pantry is rotting away. Your, your garments in the closet are moth-eaten. Your precious metals are rusting. They're corroding in the safety deposit box where you keep them tucked away. Now that teaching, the impermanence of wealth, comes straight from Jesus. James is getting all this from Jesus. In fact, when Jesus gives his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he tells anybody who wants the good life, who wants to follow after him, he says this about treasure. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So, so Jesus is pointing out, right, the futility in living for wealth. It doesn't last. He isn't saying that profit is bad or that wealth is bad. In fact, they're all over the Bible. It has a lot to say about the goodness of material wealth. In particular, it's, it's power, it's ability to bless communities of people. But our relationship to wealth can be dangerous because wealth has a unique ability to get you to trust it and to love it more than just about anything else. And for that reason, Jesus, notice with me, he warns his people not to trust in money over and over and over again in the New Testament. You'll hardly find a topic Jesus teaches on more than money. James takes that idea and he pushes it further because the people he has in mind have done more than simply fallen in love with their stuff. They have so much wealth, they have stored up so much treasure on earth that they can't even use it before they lose it. And this is more than simple gluttony because this is ill-gotten gain, which we're going to see more in a minute. But all of this stuff laying around, it's worthless. It's good for nobody. And it's actually even scarier than that because it's, act, it's actively ruining these people. Look at verse 3. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these, last, in these last days. You will not find harsher language in the book of James than that. He's saying, what is happening to your stuff is happening to you. The rot, the decay, the rust, the corrosion is happening to you. It's like a cancer eating you from the inside out. Your love of stuff at the expense of the most vulnerable among you. It's ruining you. It's eating you alive. You've laid up treasure in the last days. That phrase, last days, James is reminding us that Jesus can return at any moment and usher in the end of the age, the last days. At any moment, King Jesus can come and he can return. He can claim his kingdom. And the second, the moment that that happens, all of our material wealth, Everything we've accumulated, our savings account, our real estate, our possessions, our investments, become completely irrelevant for our well-being. Like that. As John Orberg puts it so well in a book he wrote years ago, when the game is over, it all goes back in the box. But these people keep on laying up more and more treasure on earth, more than they could ever possibly need or use. And its days are numbered. And it's ruining them. It's rusting them out. And it will be evidence against them in the final analysis. James says, your wealth can ruin you. That's the warning. So what do we do about it? Well, one way to apply this is to say, don't hoard your wealth. Don't hoard it. The imagery here is so striking to me. James is saying, look at the stuff just laying around, falling apart good for no one. And this hits me personally, you guys. I just moved and I'm unpacking boxes and it's never ending. And I want to be careful here because just having stuff is not all bad, 
And the people, I want to be clear to say, the people James has in mind here are fraudulently stolen from the most vulnerable. But I'll speak for myself. There's something off when it feels like work to go unpack my stuff. It, it says something that I have to work up the energy and the care to get my own stuff. That probably means I have too much. And I've been reflecting on my own relationship to stuff in light of that. Like this is, what do I need to change? And you guys, this is a national thing. And listen, there are lots of really good reasons to utilize self-storage, okay? You know where I'm going, don't you? But did you know that that is a $38 billion industry in the United States alone? $38 billion. It's one of the fastest growing real estate assets in the United States over the past 50 years. Self-storage units. Just containers filled with stuff that we can't fit in our apartments or our houses or our closets or our garages. Why? Because there's already stuff there too. Richard Foster is a, a Christian author. He writes a lot about the spiritual disciplines. And he puts this better than, than I can. This is what he says in Celebration of Discipline. He says, we really must understand that the lust for affluence in contemporary society is psychotic. It is psychotic because it has completely lost touch with reality. We crave things we neither need nor enjoy. And we buy things we do not want to impress people we do not like. Right, we got to take that seriously. We probably have too much. And that's why if you haven't followed along with us in our Formed Life Discipleship uh, material, uh, we pick a discipline to practice together in every sermon series that we do so that we can grow together as, as a church family. And we chose for the book of James the discipline of simplicity. Because simplicity, one of the ways simplicity helps us is it forces us to ask of our material goods, do I really need this? When we're browsing on Amazon, when we're at the grocery store or Home Depot or whatever, do we pause and ask ourselves, do I really need this thing before we put it into the shopping cart? And here's the deal. One of the most subtle ways our wealth starts to ruin us is it convinces us over time that what we want is what we need. And they are not the same thing. They are not the same thing. I bet, in fact, if we went back in time and asked these very landowners, these people that James is, is on about, if we went into their homes and we went room by room and we went item by item and we said, do you really need this? They would say, yes, I need that. They would. Would we? Like We're going to get to generosity here in a second because... That goes hand in hand but it go, with, with this whole conversation. But so does simplicity. Freedom from the love of stuff and the love of wealth that can ruin any one of us. It starts with that simple question, do I really need this? Can I give this away? Do I need to buy it in the first place? Don't hoard your wealth or it will hoard your life. It will take every square inch and more that it can. Okay, so practice, live simply. Second problem with wealth from James, verse 4, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, 
are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. These, these wealthy landowners, they were defrauding people, okay, vulnerable people, of the wages that they had earned. They were not paying them. And it's ruining them. And James is saying, yes, your wealth it can start by ruining you, and eventually through you it will ruin other people. Our wealth can ruin others. So here's the scenario, okay? James is writing into an ancient agrarian economy. Almost all wealth creation, wealth production, started with land at this time. You had to own land to make money, for the most part. Land is how you grew crops. It's how you fed your livestock. It's how you made bread. It's how you felled lumber. It's how you quarried stone. Okay, all of it. And at this time, most of that land wealth had concentrated and accumulated to an elite class of landowners. That's the group that James is writing to are a part of that class. And these Christians and other vulnerable people who were displaced, remember with me, due to religious persecution. They've left behind communities and families, support networks. And one of the only ways they could make a living was to contract with these landowners. So they would work their land for them. But the people James is talking to would withhold their wages. They'd get them to do their work and then they don't pay them for it. And remember, there's no safety net. There's no legal system. There's no advocacy program. These people are completely at the whim of their employers who are so in love with their money, they decide not to pay these people for the work that they've done. And the cry of these workers goes up to God because it always does. In fact, when God called Israel out of Egypt and gave her the law. This is how you're going to live, Israel, in the world. He said this to them in Deuteronomy 24. Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien, an immigrant, living in one of your towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset because his, he is poor and he's counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. So from the beginning, paying people, especially the vulnerable, fair wages for work done is very important to God. And these people in James chapter 5, they're not doing that. And they are ruining the lives of whole families and whole communities. This is why James is so harsh here. This is real evil. James calls it murder in verse 6. He says, the fact that you are not compensating people for their work so that they cannot buy supplies for themselves and their families is functionally killing them. And their blood is on your hands. Now, my hope and hunch is that none of you here are actively defrauding anyone. If you are, and you're listening to me right now, I, I plead with you to read this passage again and repent. Repent. Not only for the sake of those in your life, but for your own sake. Because when God says he hears the cries of his people, things tend to go poorly for the person people are crying against. Okay. My hunch is that's not for the rest of us. Okay. There's a positive principle here. Yes, our wealth has the power to ruin. But we are actually called as followers of Jesus to do more than do no harm. We are actually called to be just with our wealth. Now, justice in the Bible is more, as I said, than avoiding injustice, though that's a really good start. It is to actually seek the welfare of others, especially the most vulnerable. 
And I love how the book of Proverbs puts this. This is chapter 31. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So passages like this, right, they remind us that justice and righteousness in the Bible are more than not defrauding people. They actually are to advocate and work for the good of those who do not have a voice. Right, he says the destitute and the poor are like mute. That's the image. They cannot, they, they do not have the influence to speak for themselves. And to use our influence and our power and our wealth for them. And listen, I know the word justice is like politically fraught, uh, fraught right now. I know. But I think the Bible is pretty straightforward in its instruction in how God's people pursue justice. And the simplest way I've heard it put is that biblical justice is to make other people's problems your problem. Make their problem your problem. This is the basic idea, for example, in the whole parable of the Good Samaritan, one of the most famous teachings that Jesus ever gives, right? And it's the basis of the, the book Pastor Tom wrote years ago, The Economics of Neighborly Love. It's unpacking that parable as a way to see a definition of economic justice in the Bible. The whole story, if you'll remember, if you're familiar, is a man who sees someone vulnerable and he makes that man's problems his problems. And he leverages his wealth in particular for the sake of this other person. That's justice. There are examples, uh, amazing examples of that kind of work all over Kansas City. One that has started here in our own church is uh, to create a lending alternative to payday loans. So I started with payday loans, right? And, and the whole, they exist because if you're vulnerable, it is almost impossible to get a loan if you have a cash flow issue. If something unexpected comes up and you need to pay it right away, it's almost impossible to work with a traditional bank to get a loan. And so you go to a payday loan. And once you take out a payday loan, there's a good chance you will never, ever, ever be able to pay it back. So a few congregants here have begun exploring with a local bank and lots of organizations that are actually on the ground in vulnerable communities asking the question, what would it look like if we created a lending alternative for these folks to keep them out of a cycle of poverty that debt can create. It is hard, complicated work. So if you think, pray for them. But it's also this, it's taking someone else's problem and making it our own and leveraging our wealth and our resources and our connections to solve it. This is doing justice in the Bible. So let's ask ourselves, does, does our wealth speak for those who do not speak? Does it help to alleviate poverty and conditions that create poverty? Or does it only serve me and mine? Yes, our wealth can ruin others, but it can also do justice. And the more we pursue that, the less susceptible we become to James' final warning here. Okay, verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So James is telling these, these landowners that all their self-indulgence and their extravagance and their greed are fattening them up to be a tastier meal on judgment day. The day of slaughter. Right? He's saying your wealth, your love of wealth, 
And your need for more and more and more is like extra pounds on a prize hog and you have no idea. That's James's point. He says, you think you're storing up wealth and security and comfort and happiness. You think you found the good life. But all that that stuff is doing is accumulating judgment with interest. Every day you don't change your ways. And they are completely deceived. They are like sheep led to the slaughter. They have no, they're just following on. They have no idea where they're going or what real danger they are in. This is James' final warning. Our wealth can deceive us like nothing else. Deception. Wealth, as, I, as we've said, is not inherently bad, but there's a reason the Bible warns so consistently about the dangers of wealth. It's because wealth has incredible deceptive power when we allow it to. Incredible deceptive power. There's something about wealth that over time, if we are not careful, if we are not diligent, leads us to believe things that are completely false, that are completely contrary to reality. Things like, you know what? I deserve all of this. It's for me. Things like, you know what? As long as I have this, I don't really need God's help. Things like, uh, nothing bad can happen to me as long as I have this. Things like, once I get a little more, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be generous. Then I'll start thinking about other people. And it's this last tendency, this need for more, I think, is perhaps the biggest deception of all. My guess is, if you ask 99% of the world if they could use more money or more wealth, they will say yes. It's insatiable. There's never enough. It's never done. That's incredible deceptive power. So don't trust in your wealth. Don't trust in it. It will lie to you if you trust in it. Instead, be generous with it. Okay, now James doesn't go there in this passage, but we know that the Bible's most, one of the Bible's most powerful responses to greed is generosity. The only way to loosen wealth's grip on us is to loosen our grip on wealth. And of course, there's all kinds of research we could look at, both religious and secular, that points out that generous people are by far the happiest people. <laughs> the most joy-filled people around in general, are the most generous. That should not surprise us as believers. We worship a generous God. We're made in his image. Of course, it's good for us to be like him. But more than that, James is saying to not be generous is incredibly dangerous. The most powerful way we can disprove the lies that our wealth can tell us is by giving it away. This is, generosity is not something to do when we're comfortable with it, when we feel like it, when we simply want to feel better about ourselves, it's something to do all the time to keep us from danger. So let's be a generous people together. And when we do that, when we're generous with our wealth, not only do we avoid the danger that James is so adamant about here, something, something really powerful happens in our generosity we begin to enter in to God's story and the work that he's doing all over our city and our country and our world in ways that are beyond your imagination. Our generosity 
just, our, just, just us, our generosity as Christ's community weaves us into the story God is telling in the church planting movement in Iran and Afghanistan. Think about that. And one day, Lord willing, he's going to introduce you to somebody who is in his kingdom because they read a New Testament in Persian that you helped to fund. You're going to meet that person. And one day, Lord willing, Jesus is going to introduce you to a homeless veteran who found her way to Hero's Home Gate. And because of our partnership, is a part of his kingdom. See, we become wrapped into that story. One day when the Lord returns, he's going to show us a child rescued from human trafficking, given a chance at life again because of the generous support and space provided for her at Restoration House. On and on I could, on and on we could go. The power of generosity. Now think about that and ask yourself, how much money is that worth to you? How much? How many appliances would you trade in for that? How many boxes of filled with stuff you don't even remember that you had would you give to be a part of that? By the way, this is how Jesus looked at you. Do you remember? Jesus, who had immeasurable wealth and glory in heaven, beyond our imagination, in fact, left all that behind to become human, to become a servant, to become a crucified servant, to die on a cross for you. This is what he means when he says, At his table, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. He's saying, this is everything I have for you. This is is Jesus saying, this is what real generosity is. This is what real wealth is. Take it in remembrance of me. Do this because it reminds you that I love you. Do this because it reminds you what treasure really is and where it belongs. Do this because the generous life is the Jesus life. It's precisely the one he came to teach and show you. That's it. So we want to respond by taking the Lord's Supper together. And if you are his in just a moment, you are welcome to his table. If you are here and you do not know how you feel about Jesus, that's, we're so glad that you're here. I invite you in this time to stay where you are and consider what you've heard and to even perhaps pray that God might reveal himself to you this week. For those who are his, we're going to do something a little new today. It's actually not new. It's actually really old. We just haven't done it since March of 2020, which is to take communion the way we used to in groups of five or six at a station up here, up front, whenever you're ready. If you need uh, a gluten-free station, that station is over here to my far left. And if you are not yet ready to gather in this way, we completely understand. And there are self-serve stations in the back two corners here, and you can participate in that way. Before we begin, let me pray. 
Father God, as we come to your son's table, remind us of two things. First, that we are deeply loved. We do not come to this table. We dare not come to this table and forget that it is Jesus forever promised to us to never leave or forsake, to never leave us alone, to never walk out of the room on us, ever. Whatever baggage, whatever we come to this table with, we bring it to Jesus and he says, you're mine. Second, Father, remind us that the generosity of your son, incalculable generosity, may it empower and embolden your people as we go to be generous people, to show a watching world what it means to serve our generous king in all that we say and do. Father, prepare our hearts as we come to your table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever you're ready, please come.